In this episode, I talk to Professor Wes Morriston about the types of cosmological arguments that claim to prove God's existence by arguing from effects to causes. Many such arguments rely on the impossibility of an infinite regress of events, so a large portion of the conversation with Professor Morriston centres around this point. If you enjoyed the episode, then please support the podcast by subscribing either on the platform that you're listening to or going to YouTube and subscribing to Digital Gnosis. I really appreciate all the support that I get. And now I hope you enjoy the following conversation. And we are live now. Uh, so thanks for coming on, Wes. And I wondered if uh, for those who maybe aren't familiar with some of your work and stuff, if you wanted to just briefly introduce yourself and what you're currently doing. Yeah, I'm Wes Morriston. Uh, I'm a longtime professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Um, for many years, I, I did various things in philosophy of religion. Um, I guess that's enough about me. <laughs> and um, w- would you say that um, as a philosopher of religion, you kind of like identify with like uh, the role of like Christian apologetics in that? Or would you say um, Christianity is like, something almost incidental to your interest in philosophy as well? Um, I, I thought of myself always as a philosopher, just following the argument wherever it wanted to go. And, and then um, I, I listened to an interview with you. Um, I'm not sure when the interview was, but I listened to it maybe two weeks ago, where you were saying, um, for example, you might disagree with some of the Christian philosophers out there, like uh, people holding to, say, um, particular doctrines of inspiration, infallibility, maybe more the conservative evangelical type of Christianity. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what your relationship has been with faith and what that what Christianity means to you now? Well, uh, I was raised by very conservative religious people. My father was a minister. I was raised with the view that the Bible was the word of God and that it was utterly inerrant. Um, it was all true, indeed, all literally true. Um, <clears throat> I, I lost that view when I was in college. Um, um, for many years, I would have described myself uh, either as an agnostic or an atheist. Uh, in the 80s, I came back to the church, not to my father's church, but to a liberal church, and tried that for about 10, 15 years. Uh, it didn't really work out, um, not for me. Um, so I'm uh, none of the above. Okay. So, so would you currently kind of like describe yourself as, say, agnostic or atheist or perhaps like deist or something? Well, I don't know. It depends on the question. If the question is whether there is a perfect being where that's understood as a being who is omnipotent, omniscient, uh, perfectly good, and all the rest... Uh, no, I don't believe that. Um, so I've, I've heard like um, some people, like I think it's like Albert Schweitzer say like his his God is like a hope rather than a fact. Is, is your view something along those type of lines? Um, well, I hope there's some larger meaning, but but I don't think of it in terms of God anymore. Okay, that's that's interesting. So um, the work of yours that I'm kind of familiar with, um, I've read some of your stuff with like Alex Malpass um, against the cosmological argument as put forward by like William Lane Craig. Um, and I was wondering <coughs> if you wanted to first kind of talk about 
how that argument is put forward and what you see as some of the problems with it? Well, you want me to try to state the argument? Um, so, so just just briefly, um, as like the form that you're kind of objecting to. Well, the idea is that the past must have a beginning. Um, so the universe must have a beginning. Uh, whatever begins to be must have a cause. Uh, and then there is a quick further argumentation to the effect that the cause of the universe must be a personal being with many of the attributes of God. Um, I guess I have problems with all the stages of the argument, but I'm <laughs> nowadays particularly interested in the question about whether the past um, must have a beginning. Whether and I was, I was going to say, would you say the strongest um, argumentation that's given for that is like this, because there's the scientific kind of strand and then there's the philosophical kind of strand that- um, yeah, I that have nothing, with. I have nothing interesting to say about the scientific part. Um, <laughs> my own view from, from what I can gather reading around is that it's all up in the air uh, as to what the science is. It seems mm -hmm. like, you know, 13.7 or eight or whatever it is billion years ago, something happened. Um, but the state of the universe at that point, according to current theories, is just so utterly unlike what we have now that you can't really say what laws applied in that state of the universe. And it's all really, really speculative. Um, so I'm not of the opinion that that you can get the conclusion that time has a beginning just from reflection on contemporary cosmology, physical cos cosmology. Um, when the physicists have sorted it out and come to some agreement, then, then maybe I'll be more interested in that. But, but I'm more interested in the two purely philosophical arguments for saying that time must have a beginning. And what, what are the, those arguments? Or what would you say is the strongest uh, philosophical argument for a finite past? Well, I think they're both bad. Uh, one, of them, one of them is an argument that there can be no actual infinite whatever, that the series of events in, in time um, must have a beginning because if it didn't, it would be an actual infinite. Um, the other argument is that even if there could be an actual infinite, uh, an actual infinite cannot be formed by successive addition. Um, and if time had no beginning, the series of events in time had no beginning, then it, it would have been formed by successive addition. It would have been actually infinite. And so an actual infinite would have been formed by successive addition, but that we're told is impossible. And, and another thing I sometimes hear um, philosophers, uh, apolo apologists usually saying is something along the lines of, like, we couldn't reach the present day. Um, is that like a substantive argument or anything that, like that? That claim is made in the context of the successive edition. Right. Um, we'd be driven back and back, uh, Craig says. Um, uh, <clears throat> and, well, there's no starting point because right? It's beginningless. Um, and so we'd never get to the present day before this event could occur. That one would have had to occur. And before that one 
could have occurred, another would have had to occur, and so on ad infinitum. And Craig wants to say that uh, that just shows that, that uh, such a series formed by successive addition is impossible. And and what would you say are like the main problems with Craig's arguments here for a, a um, finite past? Or the well, if we put. Um, well, uh, let me uh, let me. Uh, a problem for both of the arguments, it seems to me, has to do with the future. Um, okay. It seems to me the future could be endless. So to take a simple example, um, you could start counting, and if you were immortal, and there was no limit to how long you could count, it could be the case that for each natural number, you could count that number and then count the successor of that number and then count the successor of that successor and so on. Um, if that were the truth about you, that's what you were going to do forever, right? Then I ask, how many, how many numbers will you count? Right, and an, an infinite would be? You will never have counted infinitely many of yeah. them. That's but, agreed on all sides. But that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking of how many numbers is it the case that you will count that number? And the answer to that question has to be the same as the number of natural numbers. But of course, that's the first cardinal infinity. Um, and yet, uh, that series is formed by successive addition because each one is added to those that have preceded it, right? So it looks like we have an actually infinite series that is formed by successive addition. It also looks like an, act an actual infinite. And if that's right, and this really is possible, then that sort of actual infinite at least is possible. And <clears throat> so, why not a beginningless series? Yeah, that would be an actual infinite because before, right, before any event occurred, there would have been another. Indeed, before any event occurred, there would already have been infinitely many. That, we understand that. Um, there are as many numbers two and greater as there are one and greater. There are as many numbers, uh, as many even numbers as there are even and odd numbers. So before any event had occurred, there would have been infinitely many other events. But that seems okay, um, unless you have, you know, some problem with some problem with transfinite numbers. So I was thinking before asking you your thoughts of some of um, the objections to that argument that I saw, for example, uh, William Lane Craig raising in his discussion with Alex Malpass that last week, um, I thought I'd ask you, do, do you think um, there's sometimes confusion in the terms that are even being discussed here? Because um, when I kind of found that when almost talking about infinity it can seem like people are talking about different things and um, some people seem to be thinking about infinity as a natural number that can you know that can be like counted in in some sense rather than uh rather than infinity which see like, like i was i was wondering how how do you think we should actually conceive of or think about infinity what do, well, the how, first, yeah 
Yeah, the first cardinal infinity is not one of the natural numbers. So you can't count to infinity in the sense of, you know, going one, two, three, four, five, then for a really long time, and eventually you get to Aleph naught. Um, no, um, but nobody is saying that that's true, that you could do that. No one is saying that. Not, not Malpass, not Craig, not me, not anybody. Right. Um, so that's, that's kind of a red herring. Yeah. Uh, what Craig says, actually he says two things about this. Well, one of them is, that the future series of countings is only potentially infinite. The other is, well, there just aren't any future countings. So the answer to the question, how many will there be is zero. Um, both of those answers missed the mark. Um, what does Craig mean by the potential infinite? Well, his idea is that you start counting, and at every stage of your count, you will have counted only finitely many numbers. So the, 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 the amount of numbers that you will have counted between the starting point and, you know, the moving now is mm -hmm. continually changing. It's continually increasing. And it increases indefinitely. Maybe it will increase forever. Uh, but it will always be a finite number. Right? That's true, but it's irrelevant. Hmm. Um, in his sense of potential infinite, it's the series between the start of the count and wherever you've got to as, right, as time yeah. moves forward. It's the series between the start and whenever then is, wherever you've got to. It's that series that continually increases. But we're not talking about that series. <laughs> we're talking about the series of numbers, each of which will be counted. The series of counting events, each of which will occur. And the answer to the question, how many of those is not potentially infinite. It just is infinite. Where would you say the... Um, disagreement lies between, say, yourself here and and Craig on that point. Um, is is he saying? Is he saying that the question, in some sense, is um, construed in the wrong way, or it's asking the wrong thing? Like, why is it that you think you're coming to different kind of answers about whether the answer is infinite, infinite, or potentially infinite? Well, I agree with Malpass. I I think that Craig confuses will and will have. Right. Um, though he says repeatedly that he is not doing that. Um, but, but that's how it looks to me. Um, the other thing he says is that you can't say that there are infinitely many of them because they don't exist. He says he's a presentist who thinks that only present events exist. Right. Um, so, you know, so here's a, here's a verbatim. I copied this out. Um, from the debate. Um, the moderator of that debate asked Craig this question. Um, some people have brought this up, uh, is that while if the past is not real, how can you say that there's an infinite number of past events? Hmm. Okay, so question for Craig is, you say that if the past had no beginning, there would be an infinite 
series of past events, right? But you are a presentist who says past events no longer exist. So mm. they don't. So how does that figure? If you're saying this is not an actual infinite, this series of future events is not an actual infinite, how is it that you can say that the series of past events, which also, according to you, don't exist, how can you say that that is an actual infinite? Now, I'm going to read you verbatim what Craig said in response to that. Because we can count them, they have been instantiated in reality. I've made it clear that when I say an actual infinite cannot exist, I mean it cannot be instantiated in the real world. And clearly, past events have been instantiated in the real world. The medieval would say that they have existed from their exited from their causes whereas future events have not been instantiated in reality on a tense theory of time. They are unreal. Now, now what, what is Craig actually saying here? He's saying, well, it's okay for me to say, one, that past events don't exist, but there have been an infinity of them, right? If the past had no beginning, it's okay for me to say that because they have existed. They have been instantiated in reality. Well, to that, the reply is, well, these future events will be instantiated in reality. Hmm. So why can't we count them too, right? Unless Craig thinks that we can't count things because they haven't yet been instantiated in reality, um, this answer just seems to miss the point. So, so try, try this simple thought experiment. Suppose that uh, you're going to count to five, and after the count of five, you will never count another number. So we could do it. Right? Yeah. We could start now. One, two, three, right? And after the count of five, you will never count another number. Now, if you say we can't count future events, then you can't say that the answer to the question of how many future events is it true that you will do one of these countings? Right. We have to say that we can't answer that question because we can't count them. I, so, so to you know, I'm inclined to say, well, so what if you're a presentist? You know, the past no longer exists. The future doesn't yet exist. We can still count them. And if we can put them in one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers, then what we've got is the first transfinite, the first transfinite uh, number. I, I wanted to ask you about these various kind of like theories of uh, time, because I, I was wondering to what extent is it also important for the um, Kalam cosmological argument say that someone hold to this specific, say like Craig's view of time versus like a B theory of time or something like that. Um, how how important to the argument of success is is the way someone views that the way that time is or works? Well, I think that I think that the the argument that an actual infinite is impossible. Period. Uh, the the argument that generally uses Hilbert's hotel as, a, as an illustration and so on. Um, that one would be equally opposed to uh, a B-theoretic, you know, beginningless and endless series of events. 
Um, the other argument, the successive addition argument, um, seems to depend on a dynamic theory of time. Um, so it would it seems to depend on the view that that uh, time literally passes, um, and and Craig's version of that, of course, is a presentist view, according to which new events are constantly, as it were, being created. Um, and present events are ceasing to exist. Um, so there's uh, an objective reality to temporal becoming, and that's how he understands it. Um, so when he says successive addition, he doesn't mean that they're just given all at once, as they would be on a B theory. Mm. Uh, he means that they are successively added in a very literal way. Um, each is added to those that have gone before. Or, or almost like, um, is, it, is it like thinking of like a spotlight moving along? Is that the way to kind of conceptualize that? Um, well, you, it's funny because, it, I mean, if, if you think of it that way, that really isn't Craig's thought. Okay. Um, if, if you think of it that way, then you've got, as it were, all the events. Right. Right. Sure. And then you've got the spotlight that's moving and, you know, this event is present and that event is present and the first one is no longer present and so mm -hmm. on. So the events are all just there as they would be in some sense there as they would be on, an, on a, a B-theoretic view. Um, and it's just the spotlights that's, that's moving. Um, that isn't Craig's view. His view is that the passage of time just is uh, the literal generation of events as we go along. Okay. Um, so some of the people who are in the chat are just saying, um, yeah, that, that they also find um, the, this kind of language and description of like actual infinity versus potential infinity kind of a bit, a bit complicated, maybe... Uh, polluted there in the language. I was wondering, um, is that like, how, how should, how do you think people should think about infinity? Like, do you think it is, for example, a tense concept to begin with? Or is it like, like how, as, is it a, a completely pure mathematical concept? Like, do you have to be a realist about maths in some sense to accept infinity? What, how, how would you go about clarifying, um, you know, for people who are, who are, who are having trouble getting their head around the concept? Well, I, I would start by just saying, let's just limit ourselves to talking about the first transfinite infinity, right? How many natural numbers are there? Yeah, infinitely. Okay, so anything, anything such that there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between its elements and the series of natural numbers is infinite in that sense. Sure. Um, that's enough for purposes of talking about this argument. Yeah. So I, is it, is it you just know, to think, um, are there? I mean, I mean, and I don't really care what, you know, what your philosophy of mathematics is, whether you're a realist about numbers or something else, um, you know, just think, can it be put in one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers? And now here's what I say. A beginningless series of events would be such that, right, discrete events, right, such that, you know, they're not overlapping, 
could be placed in one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers. That makes them that makes them infinite in the sense that I just defined. That makes the series of them infinite, right? But of course, exactly the same thing is true of an endless series. And I don't think it makes the slightest difference what theory of time you hold um, to this point. And that I think is what Malpass was, was arguing. And uh, someone has also asked, sorry, if in, in this is just strictly in your opinion, um, is Aleph naught uh, real in the universe or only a mathematical concept? Um, well, I guess that depends on whether there are infinitely many things. And I've taken no position on that. Okay. I think there could, I'm not sure that there couldn't be. But it's one thing to say that there couldn't be infinitely many things all at once. It's another to say that the past couldn't be infinite or that the future couldn't be infinite. Mm. Um, those are, actually, I'm agnostic on this. <laughs> I don't know. Um, right. I'm inclined to think that time doesn't have to come to an end. So it seems to me that it could be the case that there's a series of events each of which will be followed by another. Um, but, you know, maybe the past has a beginning, maybe it doesn't. I just don't think this argument, either of these two arguments show mm. that it couldn't. So, so the, the argument then, say, as it's given to the theist, for example, who believes in an afterlife where, um, you know, you're saying at the rate of one celestial, uh, one praise to um, the deity per celestial minute, you know, how long, how, how many uh, praises will there be or something like that? Um, that that's going into the future. But then one objection Craig proposes is like a symmetry breaker, for example. Do you want to um, describe why that objection um, might be proposed or what, what it is in the first place and why you don't think it works? Well, his symmetry breaker is the potential infinite. He says that there are only potentially infinitely many future praises. Uh, but in the article that, that you're referencing, um, that I published some, some time ago, um, I suggested that, you know, it could be the case that it is now, you know, things are now set up in such a way that an angel will say, you know, one praise and then another and then another and so on, right? Um, uh, for every natural number, in which case it's now true that the number of praises that the angel will say is infinite. Now, what Craig says is, no, 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 it's only potentially infinite, because he will have said only finitely many at any stage, uh, to which I respond, that's true, but it's completely irrelevant. I wasn't asking about the number that will have been said. I was about asking about the number of praises, each of which will be said. You know, the, the, the verse of... Uh, amazing grace that goes like this when we've been there 10,000 years we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun well that's how it would be in, in the case of an endless series of praises and it could be not just that each of them can be followed by another but it could be the case 
that each will be followed by another. But then all of Craig's arguments against the, against the actual infinite come back. I mean, if they were good arguments against the actual infinite, they would show that the series of praises has to have an end. Hmm. I mean, yep. what are his arguments? He said, well, you know, the uh, proper part is equal to the whole. Well, yeah. The even-numbered praises, there'll be just as many of them as the even and odd-numbered praises put together. Could, um, um, so, sorry to interrupt the train of thought, just because an, another question someone said, they're still not exactly sure what the difference is between potential infinity and actual infinity in the way it's being used here. Like, surely a potential, an infinity is potential by definition. Um, is it... For, for me to maybe try and is it is it that what you're saying is analytically when we're saying um, an infinity exists there's no like contradiction that you can show by that or that um what what is really going on here by showing an, an actual in the argument well um uh, the way i use the word infinity um <laughs> is just what i said a moment ago yeah can you put, is there a one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers? Yes, then it's infinite. That's the first transfinite number. Um, that's how I use the word infinity. Potential infinity is Craig's thing. Right. Um, and is it a clear concept? Well, um, if, you, if you think about it this way, be, have us let a series begin, right? First element, second element, third element, right? Now ask yourself how many will have been, right? Will have happened. Right. Yeah. Right. Now that's open-ended. Five units from now, five will have been. Six mm. units from now, six will have been. Seven units from now, seven will have been. At every step, right, only finitely many will have been. Yeah. You can't put six into one-to-one -one correspondence with all the natural numbers. Um, that's the potential infinite. That's Craig's mm -hmm. potential infinite. He yeah. says, you know, it goes, <laughs> right, um, toward infinity, but never gets there. Well, yeah, but it, sure, it never gets there. You never, you don't, Aleph not, right? The number of natural numbers is not a number in the series of natural numbers. It's the number of the natural numbers, right? So yeah, you'll never get to Aleph not. That doesn't mean that there aren't Aleph not many ones that will happen. Mm. So, so it seems to me, maybe, maybe clarify if my understanding of what's been said here is um, incorrect, that um, Craig's objection is that metaphysically the way reality is, is that, um, you, you know, there's, there's only ever going to be like a finite instantiated, but he's not saying to say like an infinity exists is like an incoherent concept in some way, like it can't, it, well... it can't be instantiated analytically or something like that. Uh, I think that's right. I mean, he doesn't claim to that there's a logical contradiction in the idea of an actual, actually infinite collection. 
Um, but he does think it's absurd. And that's where the Hilbert's Hotel argument comes in. And uh, how, so do, maybe briefly, if you want to, how would you object to that kind of Hilbert's Hotel example? Because some people have been mentioning that in the chat as well as we, as we talk. Well, I mean, Hilbert's Hotel is very, very strange. <laughs> <laughs> but there are lots of strange things. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't. I mean, yeah. it's it's quite true that if you had a Hilbert's Hotel and it were fully occupied and right, you could make room for new guests by just moving everybody to the next room and so on. Um, yeah, I, I I get that, and so that would be that would be really really weird. Um, does that mean that it's absolutely metaphysically impossible? Um, I don't know. That <laughs> might depend on questions like, is space infinite? Yeah. It seems to me that space could have been infinite. I have trouble wrapping my mind around the idea that it's not infinite. Seems so, to me space could have been Euclidean. It's not, but seems like it could have been. Um, if we're talking just metaphysical possibility. So there would have been enough room for a Hilbert's Hotel. Even Craig will admit that if time had no beginning, there would be enough time for a beginningless series of events. So, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't find that to be the knockdown argument that Craig finds it to be. But, but think about those features, those problematic features of a Hilbert's Hotel. They would be equally problematic with respect to a beginningless past and an endless future. Right. Uh, they're all on a par. I mean, you think about it like this. Here is, here is an objection that's been made to the application of the Hilbert's Hotel argument to the beginningless past. Um, people say, well, you know, the, you can't take events out of the past. Once they've happened, they've happened. So you don't get the Hilbert's Hotel problem where you can have guests leaving the hotel or moving around in the hotel to make room for additional guests. You don't get that problem with the past. So you can't shuffle the events around past it. Once they've happened, they've happened. So you don't have the Hilbert's Hotel problem with, with the, the beginningless past. Well, Craig's response to that objection is, oh, but, you know, there was already enough room for all the events, right, three years ago. Um, so you do get a Hilbert's Hotel problem. Right, so we can do it with counterfactual scenarios, but my response to that is, look, we could say the same thing about an endless future. You know, there will be these events. Oh well, all these events might have started, you know, three days later, right? And so here are three empty days. So you get, so you get exactly the same structure as in the case of a beginningless past. So 
if the Hilbert's Hotel problem works, uh, I'm inclined to say that it, that it, that it um, first, that it's hard to see how that tells us anything about whether the past could be beginningless, right? Uh, at best, it tells us only that there couldn't right now or at a given time be actually infinitely many things, right? But it doesn't really address the question that we're after, which is, could there be a series of events having no beginning, right? Or if you say, oh, well, it does address that question because we can do these counterfactual thought experiments, um, then I say it addresses, you know, the, exactly the same set of arguments goes for uh, the endless future. So, so a lot, a lot of the rejection here on the argument, um, where we're talking about the premise, the universe has, uh, the the universe began to exist um, philosophically. Would you at all attack the premise? Everything that begins to exist has a cause of its existence. Do you think there are some su uh, substantial objections to that? Or, well, I think it's, I think uh, that claim is not well supported. Um, I don't know that I have a you know, a counterexample that I want to offer. Uh, the way Craig often supports it is by, by telling us things like, well, a raging tiger couldn't pop into existence out of nothing right here, right now, could it? Um, and <laughs> thinking, well, you know, we know a lot about tigers and we know a lot about the kind of world we're in and we know that things like that can't happen. Uh, there are there are laws that you know and conditions that prevent things like that from happen happening. But when you're talking about the origin of the entire natural order, assuming it to have a beginning in time, um, what is it that tells us that this couldn't happen? Mm. What is it that tells us that that would have had to have a cause? I, I'm not sure that, you know, these reflections on tigers popping into existence um, in this room right here, right now, tell us anything about that. Mm. In general, I think that when you, when you get clear about this, you see, that the, you see that the Kalam argument, which makes a great deal of the, the fact that time must have a beginning, um, is really, it's really asking why is there this universe that has a beginning is no different from asking, suppose it had no beginning, why is there this universe? And thinking that there must have been a reason for that. Hmm. Uh, but the Kalam argument is supposed to be making do with some weaker principle, that things can't come into existence without a cause. Hmm. Yeah, I was, I, like um, the the Kalam argument. Would you say um, it's really dependent on this idea of like temporally ordered cause and effect? Would you say that that is its kind of like the biggest weakness in formulating a cosmological argument in this way? No, I think the biggest weakness is that there's no proof that the past has a beginning. Okay, I think that's that's the biggest weakness. Um, 
but but I think there is a I think there is something puzzling about this repeated claim that what begins to exist must have a cause. It seems, you know, sometimes Craig says this is empirically well supported. We just we just find that things don't pop into existence without a cause. Hmm. Uh, but of course, it's empirically equally well supported that things aren't created out of nothing. Yeah. I mean, for example, and he thinks that the whole world was created out of nothing by God. It's empirically well supported that things are caused by things that existed in time prior to those things. Um, whereas Craig thinks that the universe has an absolute beginning and it was created by a being that was timeless. Yeah, I, th I think. To, but what does prior mean um, here? Prior to the beginning of the universe. And then Craig claims that this timeless being becomes temporal in and by creating a world in time. Now, that is all very hard to, you know, wrap one's mind around. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, if I, if I were to just take my kind of intuitions about the way I metaphysically think the world is, I'd probably, you know, I'd probably be assuming the world was flat. I don't think I would have come up with that myself, um, you know, without, without having been taught that it isn't. Um, I think... Um, you know, like like the relativity of time, certain certain things that we just take for granted, say in physics and stuff. Um, I would never have guessed that the world seems to be that way if I was just going off of my. And and it seems like maybe saying you know everything that begins to exist has a cause is one of those things where you know denying it isn't like saying the triangle with four sides or something. It's uh, I'd have to look at every. I'd have to know everything about every single object that began to exist, really, to, to be confident in that. I, I believe that Craig's view is that you're supposed to just scrutinize that proposition and see that it is necessarily true. Um, it's not, you know, an analytic truth. Okay. It's not self-contradictory to deny it. But you're supposed to just see that it's true. Um, it's like seeing that, you know, nothing could be colored without being extended in space. Or, okay. You know, something like that. You just see that it's true. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that, that I see it. Yeah. Has, has he kind of um, spoke or written anywhere about his kind of, epistemology behind that like where why he thinks that would be like a warranted conclusion to reach or he and i had an exchange about that in uh, some articles in faith and philosophy uh, a while back um maybe um maybe you'd be interested to know where to find them yeah um, yes well if you go to wes morriston all one word W-E-S-M-O-R-R-I-S-T-O-N dot org. Okay. You'll find a list of my articles and many of them are on the Kalam argument. Um, I express myself much better in writing than I do in this format. But, yeah, I, should, I, can, I can appreciate that but, as well. <laughs> but many, many of them, many of them are, are there, including the ones that I'm talking about. Um, 
he responded to me and I responded to his response. Um, those would be, I think, in the early 2000s. So um, I, I'll put the links to those in the description of the, this uh, video as well for anyone who's um, interested in pursuing that further. Um, I was I wanted to know, do you, do oh, you think mind, there's... Could I say yes. just one th more thing about that question? Yeah, sure. One, yeah. Of, one of the ways that, that, that Craig argues for the, you know, the principle that whatever begins to exist has to have a cause is that he thinks that if you deny that, you're saying that things have popped into existence out of nothing. And so he will say things like, if there were no space, no time, no universe, no God, no nothing, then nothing could come into existence. I just find that a to be a very strange thing to say. Um, you know, I'm trying to imagine a state of affairs in which there isn't anything, not even time. And I'm saying to myself that in that state of affairs of absolute nothingness, nothing could come into existence. What would prevent it? Yeah. I, I, I just don't, I don't see what, what there is in absolute nothingness to prevent it. So, so that's something that was discussed in that exchange of views that, that I mentioned a moment ago. And, and, and then I'd say, you know, like, um, uh, for example, in like Aquinas's five ways right at the end, and this all men know as God, well, that, you know, perhaps we could agree from the Kalam cosmological argument that, um, you know, that the universe has a cause of its existence, perhaps if, if we were, if we had um, some defeaters to your defeaters sort of thing. But um, what, do you, do you think there are further problems with the argumentation Craig offers as to why that cause, you know, is, is God or should be called God and isn't just some undiscovered necessary particle or something like that? Um. Um, yeah, I, I've never really seen why the cause of, of the universe would have to be external to the universe. Why couldn't it be that, you know, all these contingent things are an expression of some necessarily existent thing that isn't external to the universe at all? Um, maybe it's what the universe is made of that is necessarily existent right at the deepest level. And, you know, maybe it has lots of contingent properties and is modified in lots of different ways, but, but it's not, right, external to the universe. Um, that seems to me to be a, a possibility that would be worth exploring some. Um, I'm not quite sure. I mean, Craig thinks that it's obviously got to be a timeless being Mm. And it's got to be the, this cause of the universe. It's got to be something outside, not part of the universe, um, not any aspect of the universe. Um, it's got to be timeless. It's got to be immaterial because it can't be in space because it, you know, is the cause of space. There's a lot to think about there. Mm. Um, the argument that it has to be personal seems always seemed very obscure to me. Um, he thinks there are only two kinds of causation. 
event causation and causation by persons, um, by free persons. Mm. So and, not, a, not a Calvinist. <laughs> and so we can, we can, no, he's, he's not a Calvinist. And we know it can't be event causation because this is, right, <laughs> prior to, causally prior to the existence of time itself. So it can't be, it can't be, uh, event causation, so I, he concludes that it has to be this personal causation. Mm. And there's a lot to think about there. Are those really the only two alternatives? Right. Um, is is the, the kind of personal agent causation that he's talking about even intelligible? Um, your Calvinist friends would say no. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, so just on then, st still on cosmological arguments in, in general, do you think um, there is a, a stronger formulation of a cosmological argument, you know, like um, maybe, maybe like an argument from contingency or maybe even something weird like Descartes, you know, idea of God and it has to, the a cause must contain as much reality as its effect. Where, is, it, is it even proper to to group classify these together like that or would you say they're so so different and that they should all be considered individually really well descartes argument is a special case but but yeah. uh, take the leibnizian argument from contingency I, I don't have any problem with classifying it as an argument from the world to god and if that's what you mean by cosmological argument, then then that seems that seems you know perfectly reasonable classification. Um, I'm not persuaded by the Leibnizian argument because I'm not persuaded that a strong principle of sufficient reason is true. Um, but I do think the question that Leibniz teaches us to ask is a very deep question and one that seems intelligible to me. I just don't have an answer to it. Um, here's a rough attempt at formulating the question. It's why was there ever anything at all? Mm. I think that's a very deep, uh, very profound question. Um, I'm, you know, I'm without a strong form of the principle of sufficient reason, you can't get the Leibnizian version of the cosmological argument going. Um, but but it still seems to me to be a very good question. Would, would you say like a, a third way uh, by Aquinas, a possibility, and is that, distinct, it, is that distinct from Leibniz, or would you say Leibniz is kind of picking up on that and um, articulating it in a better way? No, that's a different, the third way of Aquinas, that's a different argument. Um, I'd have to I'd have to get it out and, yeah, sure. <laughs> and look at it to, to to know how how to formulate it. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think I could give you a, a very good maybe not even a valid syllogism, but something something like um, you know there's there's possibility and and necessity um, or something something that is it, it's basically there can't be even if you get to like. Ne 
a, a number of necessary causes of contingent things, well, then there, there has to still be one necessary thing which caused the necessary things, something along those lines. Um, well, the, the third way be, it has two stages to it. I remember that much. The first is to establish that there must be something necessary, but that's necessary in a, in a special Thomas sense. Yeah. Um, it can't come into existence and can't go out of existence. Um, and then there are things that are necessary of their own nature, as opposed to things that are necessary because of something else. And then there can't be an infinite regress of things that are necessary because of something else. Um, so there must be something that is necessary in itself. And this we all call God. Um, that, but the, it's the first half of the argument that there has to be something that is necessary in the special Thomistic sense, uh, necessary in the sense of, you know, it can't come into existence or go out of existence. Right. And the argument, as I recall, was something like, uh, because of every, everything had been contingent, that is slated eventually to go out of existence, everything would have gone out of existence by now, but it hasn't. So there must be something that has that special Thomas property, or, or some, something like um, if there was if there was nothing ex nihilo nihil fit, so there wouldn't be anything. So it's something like that. I don't know. <laughs> From nothing, nothing comes. So so you right. wouldn't have. So yeah, I'm not. Do you, do you think that could be a, like a stronger? Do, do you think people who like are, are Christians and are trying to think in this way should be going down that route of the argument rather than the sort of way that Craig's gone with it. If they're trying to understand. Um, I, <laughs> well, no, I don't, okay. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think you're going to get the answer in Aquinas. Okay. Sure. Is, is there any, do you think, um, possibly successful form of the argument then out there? Or, or do you think it's kind of almost something, you know, so, something that, that isn't worth considering? And, you know, for people, like a few of the people who are um, watching right now, for example, are going to go and do undergraduate degrees in philosophy coming next year, like some, some of them who I know. And they, you know, they'll be thinking about like, what, what, arguments they want to think about and pursue maybe if they want to pursue an academic career do you think that would be the right direction to go in uh, thinking about these things or well if you want a very sophisticated version of the argument from contingency um josh rasmussen is your man um and i i think he has videos online and in which he he spells it out and, okay. and lots of papers um if you want some version of the Kalam argument, um, not Craig's, um, but one that defends it in a very sophisticated way, uh, I would say that uh, Alexander Proust is, is the person to look at. Um, I mean, I haven't got it all sorted out, but, sure. but these, these, guys, these guys have gone well beyond Craig. So someone was asking, um, actually, your thoughts on the Grim Reaper paradox as well. Um, so I thought maybe, you know, do you want to briefly go over what that is for what those who are What the Grim aware? Reaper is? Oh, the, 
Um, well, originally the Grim Reaper <laughs> had to do with a, a set period of time. And, you know, how does it, how does it go? Um, there are infinitely many of these, of these reapers and Uh, let me let me just put it in terms of beginningless time, because um, suppose that um, there's a beginningless series of minutes, right? And at each minute, there was a reaper who was going to kill Fred, if and only if a previous reaper had not already killed Fred. You very quickly get the contradiction that, you know, <laughs> no reaper could have killed him because another reaper would have killed him first. But right. some reaper has to have killed him because, right, every reaper is programmed to kill him if an, a previous reaper has not done so. Right. Right? That's yeah. the, that's the, the Grim Reaper paradox as applied to a beginningless past. Is that clear enough? Yeah, yeah, that's that's clear enough. I don't, I've not got. I mean, if he's got any more questions, I'm sure he'll throw well, my, them. My um, so, what's my take on this? Yeah, one thing I want to say is I have no idea why Craig brought this up in connection with the successive edition argument. Um, this has nothing to do with successive edition. If this Grim Reaper argument showed that the past has a, has to have a beginning, then right? If that were the only solution to this paradox, then that would be the case whether or not temporal becoming is objective. That would be the case even on a B-theoretic view of time. You see what I mean? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean if, right? if you've got reapers at a beginningless series of moments, right? It doesn't matter whether time really passes, right? If the reapers are as described, you're going to get the same contradiction. So this doesn't have anything to do with the successive addition argument. Um, that's one thing, as Craig claimed in that debate with Malpass. Uh, but um, what do I think about? I don't have any profound thoughts about it. I think what my own inclination is just to say what this shows is that there can't have been <laughs> infinitely many Grim Reapers. And I don't see why we have to explain that by saying that there can't have been any beginningless series of events. People are constantly doing this. They'll, you know, they'll combine infinity with some other, right, with some other thing, such that the combination of the two things is impossible. And then they will, they'll say, well, what we have to blame for this is infinity. And it could be, you know, it could be that it could be that the problem is just that the thing you're combining with can't be com right can't be combined with infinity. Mm. Um, now I know that's a very may seem like a very superficial solution, but yeah, that's that's sort of how I see the Grim Reaper problem. 
And uh, what, overall, what were your thoughts on the way that the kind of debate with Craig and Malpass went? Were there any um, moments in there that that particularly made you think, kind of, what, what's going on here, or this is this is wrong, or that's a good point maybe I haven't considered before? Craig, obviously, uh, quite thoroughly prepared uh, for. <laughs> no, he did not thoroughly prepare for oh, the debate. Oh, I thought he, I thought repeated, he... he just repeated his stock line on all of this over and over again. I, I thought, sorry, um, there, there was there was something that he mentioned um, that Alex had written. Um, that Alex was like, "How did you? How did you see that <laughs> kind of thing?" Oh, I, <laughs> oh, do you mean the point at which the point at which he said that there's a an operator shift, an illegal yeah. operator shift, and well, he didn't make clear what that was. Uh, the thing is, <laughs> the thing is that there are answers to all of Craig's points in that paper uh, that Malpass and I are publishing. And Craig said that he'd read the paper. Mm. Um, but as far as I could see, he just didn't understand what we were saying. Sure. And then were, were there any, any more, like, was there anything he raised then that was new in there to your mind or no. just the, no, okay. No, it was just the same old, the same old stuff um, that we talked about in, in that paper. Sure. Okay. Well, um, is there anything you think um, it would be useful to finish on just mentioning about um, cosmological arguments in general? We've got your website um I'll put all your links to your website and work and stuff in the description for people who do want to further check that out. Um, any kind of concluding remark or anything? Well, it's just been nice to be with you. Um, <laughs> and I hope this wasn't too awful. <laughs> no, no. I think it's. Uh, it, I, th I think it's all right. It's. Uh, I mean, I'm. What What I'm trying to do is just have conversations with various people from differing backgrounds and viewpoints on a lot of these um, big questions. And so like, like for example, I've had um, Don Loeb, who's like a, a moral anti-realist on. Um, I've had uh, Aaron Rabinowitz, who's like a non-theistic moral realist, like people from just these various different um, positions just to discuss some of the work they're doing, what their points are and stuff. And I think um, people kind of, appreciating that format of learning about philosophy and what's going on out there. So I, I appreciate that guests like yourself are willing to come on and uh, and talk to me at all in the first place in the free time. Where are you located? Um, I'm in Manchester in England. Oh. Well, I, I knew it was somewhere in England. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, ki yeah, kind of northwest. Um, currently stuck in a, a little flat because of our coronavirus stuff. So... <laughs> Well, you're very good at this. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to figure it out. I am. Um, I've not actually. I, I'm hoping to be able to go into into philosophy to study at some point in my in my life. But th this is actually my my outlet for um, studying philosophy as well. So, <laughs> well, I hope you get to do what you love. Yeah. Thanks. Sometime. Thanks for that. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, well, um, I will end the meeting then, if that's all right. Um, but I, I really yes, appreciate it. Is. Okay, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Cheers.